Please pray with me. Dear God, you have lavished us with life and love throughout the ages. Quiet our hearts and minds and startle us with your truth as we hear your word and learn to love your son. May the words read and preached always and only point to you. Amen. Continuing in our sermon series, A Wideness in God's Mercy, the lectionary for today takes us to the Gospel of John. And so let me set a little context for you. The birth narrative in John's Gospel is summed up within one statement. And the Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of God's only Son, full of truth and grace. God takes on flesh and becomes truth and grace walking around amongst us. Jesus gives us a glimpse of this in his first miracle by turning ordinary water into a scandalous amount of wine at a wedding feast. He then goes on to do so many more wonders. He restores sight to the blind, he enables the lame to walk, and he feeds multitudes, and in doing so, he draws so many people to believe in him, his truth and grace, and to believe in God. At one point, he turns around to those who are believing in him, and he says, I quote, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Just before the last and the seventh wonder, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, though they die, they will live. And then he calls a very dead Lazarus from the tomb to live and walk again. In equal measure to the belief that Jesus inspires amongst those who follow him and see this grace and truth, his ministry threatens to dismantle the religious authorities' grip on the people. So raising Lazarus became the last straw, and they plot and scheme to do everything they can to kill Jesus. John's gospel is approaching a climax, and it's just ringing with tension in the gospel. So Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem and certain death, and this is the lesson that we're given today before he goes into Jerusalem. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany to the home of Lazarus, whom he'd laid, raised from the dead. There they gave him a dinner, Martha served, and Lazarus sat at table with him. Mary took a costly perfume, a pound that was made of pure nard, and anointed Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, and the one who was about to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared at all about the poor, for he was known to be a thief, and he kept the common purse from which he would steal. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought this so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. When the great crowd of the Jews learned that he was here, they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he'd raised from the dead. And the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death as well, since on account of him, many of the people were deserting and believing in Jesus. Here ends our reading. About a month ago, Saturday Night Live hosted a fictitious game show entitled, What's That Name? 
There are two contestants that were on that game show, Doug and Courtney. They were competing for money to correctly name the people that were placed in front of them, either through a picture or the actual person. In the opening round, each contestant is shown a photo of a celebrity, not to name the celebrity, but that celebrity's either current or former love interest. But both Doug and Courtney are well attuned to Hollywood, so they easily get this, and they name the person correctly, and they each earn $5. The second round raises the stakes with what's called walk-on clues. The contestant Doug's best friend it walks out with his girlfriend, a woman he's been dating for four years, someone that the contestant Doug has been to dinner with multiple times and has sat with at weddings. Surely he would know her name. If he knows her name, he's going to win $250,000. Her icy stare is validated when she absolutely burns a hole through him. He has no idea what her name is. As his best friend Todd walks off stage with his girlfriend, he apologizes to Doug, pardon me, to Todd, and not even to this anonymous woman. The next question goes to Courtney. Another walk-on clue is presented. You see, she's been a partner in this firm for 10 years, and it's her partner that walks in, along with her partner's wife. She has known this woman for the 10 years that she's worked there. She's socialized with her. She knows who she is. And yet, when presented again with an opportunity to win $250,000, the only thing she knows she's ever referred to this woman is as either lady or mama. As the game continues, the host of the show goes and grows increasingly belligerent. He is angry at the blindness these contestants have because they just don't seem to be willing to see the people, nor do they really care that it's been exposed. The name of the show is most appropriate. It's not what's someone's name, it's what's that name, even further objectifying these people. So there's a final round. Tensions mount and it goes to Doug because it's the $10 million bridesmaid challenge. Three of the bridesmaids of his wedding are presented and he gets to pick out one. And from that one that he picks out, he's supposed to correctly know her name. He doesn't. So he's given three of the four letters in her name. He still doesn't know her name. So as those fuck off and Doug is mortified and He's more than that, he's just angry, and he confronts the host with, why does he pursue, in Doug's words, such a mean and pointless game? And the show host responds in one word, chaos. So I wonder if the host of the show created the chaos so that the contestants might learn to see and know and care for people. But given the way these contestants reacted, maybe chaos is merely the way in which they remain floating through life unmoored to people that are around them that are important or obviously not important. What is obvious is that both contestants lose miserably. And I'm not sure if the game was funny, certainly it was, but it was also quite tragic because in many ways it kind of hits close to home at times when we look past people and don't know them. You see, the values that a person holds, the values filter what is seen and consequently how we behave. 
If fame matters, a celebrity's life and changing the spotlight will consume your focus and absolutely diminish your awareness of anyone who might be falling in that spotlight's shadows. You're just not even going to care about seeing them. And if power is desired, climbing on top of another person is simply just a necessity of getting ahead, as is looking past or through those people who can't contribute to your quest. It's just part of the natural consequences. And we all know that people who spend more time managing up in an organization and not down or around become exceedingly exposed to those below them. And if seeing the truth matters, your position and any attendant humility or hubris becomes the filter, either sharpening your view or absolutely clouding it. Consistently, those at the bottom of the pyramid, bottom of the ladder, or bottom of the social standing, however you want to describe the hierarchies of life, those at the bottom most often see the truth most clearly. For example, your housekeeper might be more likely to, to discern if you're sticking to a diet by what's in your trash and your laundry than your nutritionist. The nerdy kids at school are apt to see through the preening and the pretending of the cool kids who are working hard to capture attention and to be in the right clique. And from my consulting experience, I absolutely know that the junior analyst on a team probably knew more about the work that all of us put into it, our understanding of all of the ways in which we put through multiple drafts, and the overall progress in those of us that would preen in front of the client or the partner. That junior analyst knew what was going on. And always our most successful consulting projects started at the bottom of an organization or at the front line or however it is you define the rubber meeting the road. A view from the bottom is honest. And those at the bottom have the most to lose or gain when an event rattles the status quo because they can't afford to deceive themselves into some false reality. They have to see what's going on. Those at the bottom know what's true and right and what will endure. And that's from our story today. Mary sees the truth of Jesus. She sees the grace and truth that he has embodied. As a woman in first century Palestine, she was unquestionably at the bottom in every way possible. She had no wealth. She had no authority. She had no standing. She couldn't live on her own. Mary was at the bottom. And although many of the women in the New Testament are named along with Jesus' followers, and they are always the first at the tomb on Easter morning, they're consistently shoved aside for more credible witness or disciple, and that's always a man. But Mary doesn't care. She knows that Jesus brings life. He brings life in every interaction, and he's the guy that raised her brother from the dead. She has nothing to lose in pouring out her life to him, and we have everything to gain in witnessing what she does. So Mary holds a clay jar in her hands. It's worth a year's wages for a man. Wordlessly, she kneels at his feet. She breaks it open, and the fragrance fills the house. It's a sharp scent somewhere between ginseng and mint, and it's unmistakable. Everyone in the room watches as she does four remarkable things. 
First, she pours the perfume on Jesus' feet, which is never done. You don't anoint someone's feet. You anoint a king's head. She's anointing his feet. She's aware that he is going to be walking into his death and that, that, in fact, she will be seeing him crucified. She loosens her hair in a room full of men, something an honorable woman would not do. She touches him. A single woman would never touch another single man, even if they're friends or family. And she wipes the perfume with her hair. It's intimate touch of pure gratitude because she sees what he means to her. She's not doing this to gain anything, but only to give him the very best of everything she can offer. Mary's belief in him compelled such generosity. You see, there's no reason to hoard or to save, but instead to give away all that is precious. This event directly precedes Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, and it foreshadows the Passover meal when he will strip to his waist and kneel on the ground and wash his disciples' feet and then command them to do the same. Whenever we encounter Mary, who is the sister of Martha of Bethany, she is always at the feet of Jesus. But it's from such a perspective that she can see what he's doing, she can hear what he's teaching, and she can receive what he offers. This humility of hers allows her to behold his divinity and to see him for who he is and was and always will be, and that's God incarnate. She sits at his feet like someone who kneels in quiet prayer and reverence, waiting for the Holy Spirit to move amongst her. Mary understands discipleship long before Jesus needs to instruct her. If Mary were asked Jesus' name, she would certainly know Jesus, but she would also know the word Savior or grace, and she could probably respond with all of the I am statements that he's given in the Gospel of John. I am the shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine, you are the branches. She knows that he embodies eternal life. And by knowing him, her life takes on a quality that partakes in goodness and joy. And she receives not only the great prize of knowing his name, she begins right then and there to live an abundant eternal life right then. We are late in the season of Lent. And we are to ask ourselves if we have really adjusted our point of view since the time of Ash Wednesday, when we were told that we are dust and to dust we will return. Have we gotten down on the ground to really examine the quality of our lives? Can we see the truth? Because often what gets in the way of seeing the truth in Jesus' life is also what gets in the way of us receiving the generous gifts that he gives us. When we know Jesus by name, we might surprise even ourselves at how gladly we will pour out all of what we have and all of who we are. I've thought about this story a lot, and I have to wonder, what would it have felt like for Mary to have ensured that Jesus knew just how deeply she loves him? When author Philip Simmons was 35, he was diagnosed with ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. He was forced to view the bare essentials of his life. 
He lived for five years longer than anyone would have thought and gifted us with a beautiful book entitled Learning to Fall. I want to share with you some of his wisdom. We deal most fruitfully with loss by accepting the fact that one day we will lose everything. And when we learn to fall, we learn that only by letting go of our grip on all that we ordinarily find precious, when we lose our grip on our achievements, our plans, our loved ones, and our very selves, we can find ultimately the most profound freedom. In the act of letting go of our lives, we return more fully to being alive. To accept death is to live with a profound sense of freedom. The freedom first from the attachment to the things that this life, things in this life that just don't really matter. Fame, material possessions, and even finally our bodies. Acceptance brings the freedom to live fully in the present and the freedom finally to act according to our highest nature. And only when we accept our present condition can we set aside fear and discover the love and compassion that are our highest human endowments. And out of our compassion, we deal justly with those around us, not just on our good days or when it's convenient, but everywhere and in all times, we are free to act accordingly with others what is highest. May we not wait for such a life-threatening illness in ourselves or in those we love to learn how to live. May we learn Jesus' name. May we receive his grace and his truth. And then may we follow in his ways. May it be so.